Our scripture reading this morning is from Ezra chapter 3 and 4. I'll be reading the first nine verses, and Ron will pick it up there up to verse 5 of chapter 4. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation, and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after they arrived at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Jozadak, And the rest of their brothers, the priests and Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, appointing Levites, 20 years of age and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his son and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hovdaviah and the sons of Henadad, And their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, 
we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Father, we thank you for giving us your word so that we would know how you would have us to live. We just pray that your spirit will help us to learn what messages you have, what message and lesson you have for us today from your word brought to you by your servant, Pastor Yuri. We ask your blessing on this message today. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you very much for that reading. Ron and Helen, or should I say mom and dad? When you get sent to your room with that radio voice, you, uh, you know he means it. <laughs> well, whoever you are, whatever you believe, we all have reasons to feel discouraged right now. When a colleague of mine at the concert hall asked me last week, what I was preaching on next, I mentioned the title of this sermon, Worship Amid the Ruins. She made big eyes and launched into how appropriate this seemed to her given the current crisis we're facing in the world, one that was triggered by a respiratory virus, but one that, like the virus itself, seems to keep growing in its devastating scope. Not only does it attack the human respiratory system, we have all heard by now how COVID-19 can also affect our circulatory and nervous systems, and who knows what else. Likewise, the coronavirus pandemic has cast a shadow not only over our physical health, but also our mental health, our spiritual health, our economic health, and our social health. The very ways we interact with one another and experience reality may well be impacted permanently as a result of the virus and the measures chosen to fight it. My friend looked a little confused, though, when I expanded on that obvious trail of destruction to include, amid the ruins, the state of the church in the world, what we used to call Christendom, which was actually what was on my mind when I felt God leading me to preach on Ezra 3. If you're like me, this has been on your mind since long before we ever heard of that first mysterious outbreak in Wuhan. But to an avowed progressive like my friend, the notion that the church is a dwindling cultural force seemed an odd thing to fixate on. To many, Christianity still seems dominant, for some, even a menace. They can pull out a map of Winnipeg and point out scores of Christian place names and landmarks. St. James... St. Vital, Kildonan, all names of old parishes in which we find immediately recognizable church buildings like St. Boniface Cathedral, Springs Church, and Westminster United 
in addition to the countless other less imposing places of Christian worship located, like ours, on a major thoroughfare, many of which, like, for example, Bishop Grandin Boulevard, are named after prominent men, mostly Christians of some description. And many resent what they see as a Christian system of oppression that must be pulled down, whose tenets must be, if not obliterated, at least put in their proper place as no better or worse than those of other religious systems. But of course, to those of us who know that such fixtures do not represent even the outskirts of true Christianity, let alone the heart of it, we see that such cultural relics are themselves the ruins, largely barren icons of what was once a vibrant, truly dominant Christian culture, a culture that, despite its human sinfulness, was largely a force for good in the world, whose fundamental truths shone a light into the darkness and made countless lives indisputably better. As I've reflected on our passage, however, I've found myself also drawn to the fact that regardless of the realities of the outer world, ruined can also describe our inner reality. For some, it's the ruin of a shattered body or of a once healthy mind. For, other, for others, it's the ruin of broken relationships. But most painful of all to consider and harder to accept The Bible teaches that we are all ruined from the moment we are formed in the womb. As David laments in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So whatever your situation, whether you're young or old, rich or poor, healthy or sick, whether you're fixated on the state of the pandemic or the state of the church, we have all had a lot of time to consider the ruined state in which all humans live. If you're a romantic like me, you're tempted to wallow, to wax nostalgic over the mossy, austere lines of the moldering hulk. I like that line. But of course, this is not what we see in our passage from Ezra. And it isn't what I have planned for today. For this last sermon in the series that Pastor Mark has called A New Day, A New Year, A New Life, A New Eternity, it seemed to me that a practical approach would be more helpful. What do we do when we find ourselves amid the ruins? Where do we even start? And how can we even think about worshiping when we're surrounded by such a mess? We prepare, we repair, and rebuild. These three words, prepare, repair, rebuild, are inspired by Ezra 3, and they simplify the central theme of the message that Pastor Mark mentioned was in the bulletin. That's still the main point, but I'm hoping that you'll find prepare, repair, and rebuild easier to remember, because when you find yourself tempted by despair and don't know what to do, I want you to think Prepare, repair, rebuild. So it's with these three words that I've shaped my message today. And we'll also discover seven 
seven simple principles or practices that I think should help you worship God, even if your life is falling apart. And so if, even if you don't usually take notes during a sermon, I'd encourage you to keep a pen and paper handy to write these practices down. In the first part of our book of Ezra, we find ourselves among a small band of pioneering prefects and priests, a group charged with the task of rebuilding the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem by their Persian emperor, Cyrus. Jerusalem had lain in ruins since its total destruction 70 years earlier, and it must have been completely uninhabitable since no one had taken up residence there in all that time. And the text tells us that all of the returning exiles decided to live in the surrounding towns when they first arrived. But the first thing we should notice from our text is what the leaders of the group did not do. But before we get there, I want to remind you, at the beginning of our service, I asked Neil to read a passage from Jeremiah, who wrote those wonderfully hopeful words in Jerusalem, looking ahead both to its destruction and beyond it, to its restoration. To get a sense of what Jerusalem must have been like as it appeared to those coming back to it, though, I'd like to share share the impressions of the same man after seeing Jerusalem's annihilation with his own eyes, which we can find in the short little book we call Lamentations. And I'm just picking a few verses, so I won't make you turn there. It's kind of scattered. He reflects. You can imagine him just looking, gazing out over the city. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. The roads to Zion mourn, for none comes to the festival. All her gates are desolate. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has laid waste his tabernacle like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. So what was it that these leaders didn't do? Well, first it's important to note that the leaders Ezra mentions are not just anyone. The man with that funny name, Zerubbabel, was the rightful heir to the throne of David. It's amazing that he was allowed to go there in the first place. Now, the Persians were well known for their relatively enlightened practices, but to send an exiled king back to his domain is a pretty risky move. Wouldn't he be tempted to lay claim to his title and organize a revolt? But, of course, Zerubbabel did not do this. He did not assert his rights though he could have. The passage also mentions that they were afraid of the peoples of the lands, which we learn were Gentiles who had been transplanted to Judah from other places and who would not have been happy that they were being squeezed out of their new home. But as far as we know, 
Zerubbabel didn't organize a militia either. Instead, he and the faithful priests understood that there was a larger principle at stake. Regardless of any legitimate political claim or even the need to safeguard their own lives, they saw something else as far more urgent, which was to act according to what was written in the law of Moses. They knew that who they were was bound up not in their system of government or even in their mere survival, but mainly in the worship of God as it had been revealed to Moses and handed down to them painstakingly, generation after generation. In short, before anything else, they were determined to do what the Bible says. They were bound to make its priorities their own. So, they set out to build an altar. Why an altar? Well, because according to the law of Moses, sacrifice is the only means sinful people have of approaching a holy God. This is something that we tend to be embarrassed by today, something we tend to downplay to our shame Sacrifice has always served as the God-ordained means of purification. And, like it or not, it still is. The New Testament book of Hebrews puts it plainly. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Chapter 9, verse 23. At the same time, Hebrews also makes equally clear that Jesus... The perfect, sinless man, the God-man, the great high priest, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Through him, Hebrews goes on to say, we can draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. That's chapter 10, verse 22. The returning exiles, of course, lived centuries before Jesus. But by first setting the altar in its place or in its, on its foundation, as the NIV has it, they showed us the most important thing we need to do to prepare for worship. Put our trust in Jesus and in his atoning blood. Without trusting in him, nothing we do is worth anything. Not our best efforts to be better, whether that's clearing away the rubble of our lives, providing for our families, helping others, working towards a fair and equitable society, or even attempting to worship God. I'll be as blunt as possible. Apart from Christ's blood, our worship no matter how fancy, no matter how heartfelt and sincere, is a foul stench to God. If you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I urge you not to delay. And again, I'll be as plain-spoken as possible. If you have not trusted in Jesus, nothing that I say from here on will apply to you. Coming to him is the essential thing. 
Well, the second thing to notice in our passage is that all the people who were scattered throughout the area in their towns and villages gathered as one man in Jerusalem. That's from the first verse of chapter 3. Now, they didn't all participate in making the altar, but they all made the effort to come together. And now next we see that the priests and Zerubbabel arose to build the altar and set it in place. They didn't just sit around in the ashes, gazing skyward. They got up and did something. In other words, preparation for worship is not passive. So this brings us to our first three practices. Practice number one, worship now. Practice number two, worship in faith. Practice number three, worship in faithful community. Now, you might be saying, hang on a minute. I thought you were going to show us how to prepare, repair, and rebuild first. Don't we have to be ready before we worship God? Well, no. Other than what I said earlier about trusting in Christ. And that's what worship now is all about. What we see in Ezra is people eager to worship God, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how they feel. They show up and they worship despite the fact that the formerly magnificent temple of their God was lying scattered about their feet. We choose to worship now. Then you might be saying, but I don't know how. How can I worship properly if no one's ever taught me? Again, the example of these faithful people in Ezra 3 is helpful. Their whole worship system had been totally destroyed. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. The handful of them who were old enough to witness the proper temple worship were extremely rusty, to say the least, and the rest would only have known what they did know at second hand. But they stepped out in faith, knowing that God had been faithful to them in bringing them that far. And now for us, things are even more simple than they were for them. Our sacrifice has already been made. We have everything we need to worship. We can all pray. We can all sing. And we can all study our Bibles to learn how to do those things in ways that are more pleasing to God. Now, some of you might object that you don't know how to pray, and that's fair. So here are a few pointers to get you started. Prayer is talking to God. It's not more fancy than that. And prayer does not have to be fancy. In fact, prayer should never be about impressing anyone. And now, here I might surprise a few people. Prayer is always better when it can be done out loud. This last one is not for God's benefit, but ours. Does God not hear our thoughts? Of course he does. And I'm definitely not insinuating that there's some kind of magic that only happens when we say things out loud. But praying aloud forces us out into the open. It gives voice to an inner life that we like to pretend God doesn't know about. 
Thus, we fully confess our hidden sins to God without attempting to hide them. We admit to him and to ourselves our deepest fears. We hear ourselves declare our trust in his power and profess our faith in his goodness and his love. Okay, but, okay, prayer, fine. But what's the big deal about singing? Some of you are undoubtedly saying to yourselves, I have a terrible voice. God certainly wouldn't want it in his choir. Well, as a music educator, I could talk all day about the benefits to you of singing, regardless of how you sound, but that would miss the point. It basically boils down to the fact that God has commanded you to sing. It is, in fact, one of the most frequent commands in the Bible. Sorry if that's news to you, but you don't have a choice in the matter. And it's really not about you anyway. So, sing. Sing, regardless of whether you have someone to harmonize with or whether you're all by yourself. Sing, whether you have a device or instrument to help you stay on track or whether your uncertain warbling strays far off key. Sing, whether you have a specific tune in your ear or you are tone deaf. Sing, whether by doing so you're convincing people that you finally lost it completely or whether you actually inspire them to join in. Just sing. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Colossians 3.16. I will say one other thing, which is that the most faithful praise recorded in the Bible would probably have sounded awful by merely musical standards. What I mean is this, if you were one of the other prisoners locked up in Philippi, who was moved by listening to Paul and Silas mutter and moan their prayers and hymns, and if you somehow miraculously happened to have been equipped with an iPhone (laughs) and posted the sound of their shuddering, pain-wracked voices on social media, it probably wouldn't have gotten a lot of likes or shares. So, at least not for the musical quality. So, obviously, all the things... The kinds of things that I stress to my cello students, for instance, things like purity of tone and intonation and being perfectly together, these are not primarily what God is paying attention to when his people sing. Worship now and worship in faith. Even if you're hazy on the details, pray, sing, and study the Bible. Practice three is to worship in faithful community. The people in Ezra didn't isolate themselves in their towns, waiting for the leaders to get everything ready before they trekked to the heap of rubble that was Jerusalem. They walked for about half a year from Babylon, basically dropped off their gear in their ancestral towns, and in the seventh month, gathered as one man. Why would they do that? It was a long and arduous trip. It's not like they didn't know that God is everywhere. Couldn't they have worshipped him just as faithfully, not to mention more safely, from the comfort of their own homes? Didn't they know about self-care? Although they did know that God is everywhere, they also knew that he is a God who works in time and place. He is a God who created us to be together, and more importantly, to worship him together. They knew that 
when God's people gather, it is a special thing. It's a unique situation where God works in and through us in ways that he does at no other time. Corporate worship is a foretaste of heaven. Not only this, it is a physical representation on the earth of the armies of heaven that transform sinners to saints and makes God's enemies gnash their teeth and tremble. For us, this basically means go to church and take advantage of any and every opportunity to meet for worship with God's people. Of course, we find ourselves at a unique moment in history in which gathering for worship is something which in itself poses a greater health risk, and not only to ourselves, but to others. Still, even before COVID, physical participation, not only in church, but at all kinds of events, has been in decline. So when it's safe to do so, we all need to rededicate ourselves to weekly church attendance. And in the meantime, let's use every way that God has blessed us with to worship him in some form of community, whether that's by means of this live stream or or joining with us on Wednesday night in our Zoom call, or singing together with your household, or praying with friends, either over the phone or by going on prayer walks together outside, be creative and praise God together. Well, our second big word is repair. Repair is one of those wonderfully rich words that has many shades of meaning. Of course, the most common way we use it is when we want to talk about fixing something that's broken. And that is what Zerubbabel and the priests do with the altar of the God of Israel. When the text speaks of building the altar, it seems that unlike the major project that they had to undertake to rebuild the foundation of the temple, importing timber and skilled labor from Lebanon, the altar was reassembled in one day using the materials they had at hand. Maybe, maybe they simply cleared away the space and piled up stones from the rubble of the old altar itself. Whatever they did, they did in faith, not really knowing what they were doing. It's certain that none of them had made the altar of God before. Still, the text says they set the altar in its place. So in the midst of the rubble, they must have figured out the place that the altar had been. This actually might not have been so difficult, since it seems that the temple was built around the outcropping of rock at the summit of the mountain, which you can see in this picture here. And the arrow is pointing to it. And the altar was built on the level ground just to the east, which was the site of the old threshing floor. And you can read all about how that site was chosen if you look and read First Chronicles 20. Now, these pictures that I'm showing are purchased from a, a really fascinating website called Rittmeyer Archaeological Design. Lean Rittmeyer is a biblical archaeologist and architect who worked on the ESV study Bible, among many other things. And he kindly gave his permission to have his illustrations displayed on our live stream. This is a picture you can see starting in the top left. 
of what sort of an aerial view of what uh, straight down looking at the mountain on which the temple ultimately was built initially when it was in the time of Abraham, then in the time of Solomon, then the time of Hezekiah, and then the big long arrow points to what ultimately became uh, the temple that they built after Zerubbabel arrived. This next uh, cutaway picture shows how the foundations of the temple in its various forms interacted with the natural landscape of the mountain. According to Rittmeyer, this archaeologist, the Holy of Holies was built over the summit, and the altar was farther off to the east, roughly where the arrow is pointing. Those blue shapes you can ignore, because those, those are just cisterns that have been excavated over the years. Now, the rock summit is actually still there, although it's covered by the Muslim shrine known as the Dome of the Rock. The rock refers to the summit of the, mount, of the mountain. It apparently, though, still shows traces of both the foundation of Solomon's temple. You can see the arrow pointing. That's where the foundation uh, marks are, as well as a rectangular depression where the Ark of the Covenant once rested in the very center of the Holy of Holies. Well, from that fixed location, which would have been like that when Zerubbabel arrived, the priests, along with Zerubbabel, could have determined the exact location of the altar, just as Rittmeyer feels that he has done. So if you're standing in the courtyard of the Dome of the Rock, you could actually stand where the altar was. Now you can take the slide away, uh, Colin. Regardless of whether they were actually right, the point is that even as Zerubbabel and the priests in faith repaired God's altar, God extended grace to the people in reconciliation. God restored the means through which they would be able to approach him, the means that he had suspended for 70 long years. In other words, repairing the altar allowed them to repair to the altar. That's the less common use of this word, meaning to return. Every day they were able to repair to the altar of God, to offer the daily burnt offerings required in the law of Moses, by which they consecrated themselves morning and evening as God's chosen people, holy and set apart. Every seventh day, they would repair to the altar and rest and celebrate the Sabbath just as God had ordained from the beginning of creation. Two weeks after the altar was initially repaired, they once again repaired to the altar to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which, as we learned last week, was the major festival of the year that commemorated God's faithful presence and provision in the wilderness during their first exodus. Every month, they repaired to the altar to mark the new moon, and as the num book of Numbers tells us, to blow their trumpets as a reminder of them before God. Numbers 10.10. 10. They would repair to the altar to joyfully celebrate the restoration of every feast they had once taken for granted. And they would repair to the altar 
whenever their love and gratitude to God overflowed, enjoying their free will offerings to the Lord in a common meal with the priests. Thus, they repaired the altar, and they repaired to the altar to deal with the very real danger that confronted them on every side. They repaired and repaired to the altar as an antidote to fear. The ESV has it a little bit differently than the NIV, and it's actually a little more natural translation. The NIV says, despite their fear, they uh, put up the altar. In the ESV, it says, they set the altar in its place for or because fear was on them, because of the peoples of the lands, which is the more simple and, I think, more direct and accurate translation. They repaired and repaired to the altar as an antidote to their fear. And so we arrive at our next two worship practices. You can put this up at the bottom of the, of the screen, Colin. Practice number four, worship at the altar. That is, worship as those who are set apart as the people of God through the sacrifice of his son. Worship as those who have been set free from the bondage of sin, confident that God is your God, confident that he is present, confident that he provides for you at every moment. Worship as those who, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, are the temple of the living God. Practice number five, worship always. That is, worship all day, every day, in the morning, in the evening, on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, at the beginning of every month, on special occasions, and whenever you feel thankful, and even more importantly, when you don't. Finally, we come to rebuilding. Our text tells us that the altar was just the first step in a much larger, much more painstaking reconstruction that would take stretch over months and years, even whole lifetimes. From the time that the altar was built, the day that it was rebuilt, there was a seven-month gap before the text says that Zerubbabel and the priests and everyone else made a beginning on the foundation together with the rest of the people. This work was well-planned and meticulously executed. The people also worked together to rebuild the foundation of the temple. The people took their cues from the leadership. The people submitted to their supervision. Likewise, as we rebuild, we have to plan carefully. We have to work together tirelessly, cheerfully, and submissively. Along the way, they faced some difficult choices that forced them to be discerning. On the one hand, they purposely engaged and paid their old trading partners, the Gentiles of Tyre and Sidon, worshippers of Baal, to provide timber for the foundation. But on the other hand, they refused to allow other groups of Gentiles, the peoples of the lands, to help in the building of the temple, despite the fact that they claimed to worship the same God. 
we don't know exactly what it was that caused the leaders of the Jews alarm, but it was not mere spitefulness on their part. It's likely that to these peoples, Yahweh was merely one more god in their polytheistic pantheon. In fact, this was the very practice that Solomon and his successors got in the habit of that ultimately resulted in the destruction of the kingdom and the temple. In any case, the lasting hostility of the peoples of the lands demonstrates the fact that Zerubbabel and his fellow leaders called it right. Thus, as we rebuild, we need to be very careful that we partner with the right people and not assume that just because someone claims to have similar priorities, that they are in fact working toward the same goal. And so we arrive at our final two practices. When the foundation was complete and the lavish worship prescribed by David was performed by the people after so many years, the people's reaction was mixed. Some shouted with joy at what had been accomplished, while others wept over what had been lost. The text doesn't tell us that either group was right or wrong. So it seems that both reactions were appropriate. Thus, practice number six, we are to worship always. That is, worship is not always exhilarating or joyful. There's room for lament, whether we feel happy or sad or indifferent. We are to bring our whole selves before the Lord. But it also means that worship doesn't always look like worship. Sometimes it looks like building. Sometimes it looks like thoughtful consideration. Sometimes it looks like teaching Sunday school. Sometimes it looks like serving on an AV team. Some of the most inspiring stories I've heard during this pandemic is how, despite lockdown restrictions, churches have been meeting the needs of their communities. Rosaria Butterfield talks of pivoting after not being allowed to meet for worship in their church building. Since worship was not considered by the government to be essential, they converted their building into something that was a food distribution site. So while their church could not meet to sing and pray and hear the word preached, they could meet together to serve their community with free food that also helped out local farmers and restaurants keep their products from going to waste. They also made it a safe, clean, socially distanced place where construction workers in the neighborhood could safely access their washrooms and shelter from the elements and come in out of the cold. Along the way, the people of her church were also able to continue sharing the gospel in ways that were seen as compassionate and socially responsible. And finally, practice number seven, we are to worship as we're instructed to worship. The text tells us that the people worshipped according to the directions of David. Thus, they worshipped God reverently, wearing special clothes. They worshipped God loudly with trumpets and cymbals. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And what was it that they sang? A psalm of David. In the Psalms, we find the words that teach us how to worship God. And while these are not the only ways and words that we may use to worship, the more we use the Psalms and other biblical songs to worship God, the more our worship will begin to shape us 
into the true worshipers that God created us to be. To close, I'd like to go back to Jeremiah as he surveys the broken-down walls of his beloved home. He compares himself to the captured and ravaged city, afflicted by God himself. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shut out my prayer. He has blocked my way with blocks of stones. But through his faithful lamentation, Jeremiah is able to ultimately affirm that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, however it might seem. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And he finishes with a little prayer. Great is your faithfulness. Many of us are feeling like Jeremiah, besieged, bitter, hemmed in, unheard, frustrated, fretful, and fearful. Then, as now, the antidote to all those things is to prepare for worship by repairing to Jesus. He will give us the courage and the means to rebuild the foundation. Whatever ruins are troubling you, worship now. Worship in faith. Worship in faithful community. Worship at the altar. Worship always. Worship always. Worship as instructed in the Bible. For worship amid the ruins is not merely a title but a command. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to remember day by day to constantly be preparing our hearts for worship, to repair to you, that is to return to you, to worship you, and show us how it is that we can rebuild whether that is rebuilding after COVID or that is rebuilding the church, rebuilding a broken body, rebuilding a broken mind, rebuilding failed marriages, rebuilding broken relationships. We have no means to do that on our own. And we fall at your feet crying out for mercy. In your name we pray, amen.